0: I thought you'd want to see uh, how the cafe's transformed on Sunday, or Saturday, excuse me, and uh, what happens there. It's really a neat thing. So the food bank that Scott is referring to was actually a food bank that was started by Inversion Church, which was a church plant that came out of Castle Oaks, a covenant church plant that met in Centennial Covenant uh, up until right, really right before the pandemic uh, kind of kicked off, and they wrapped up their time as a church plant. Not all church plants Go. You know, uh, so they made a good go of it. it was, they were doing the, the food bank in the lobby of Centennial Covenant, and Scott had begun attending here um, with his fiance. And he said, "You know, we've got this food," and we said, "Well, we know hungry people," and uh, and so this is who Scott is. He's not, you know, he's not trying to make a, a complex thing. He just says, "You know what? So we got some food here. We got hungry people here. We should do something to get them together." And uh, that's what they do. And it's really an incredible thing. Um, he'll let you know if you chat with him or if you volunteer. They get a variety of things. Uh, it's not the same thing every, every week. Uh, they're trying to increase their partnerships with uh, grocery stores and restaurants that pitch things and food banks that have extra. And so it's, a really, a, it's really a great thing. So uh, if you want to volunteer, you know how to do that. Get involved. Send an email to info at Castle Oaks, and we'll get you connected to Scott. A couple things I'll mention. Hey, happy Father's Day. We have some dads in the room. Give the dads a hand, would you? you. So, we're going to celebrate you today by giving you some bacon, a little bit of bacon. And uh, yeah, clap for bacon. Yay, bacon um, carefully, it's not idolatry. It's just, you know, we like it like bacon, you know, so we're going to talk about that today a little bit, not bacon, but idolatry. And so, uh, it makes us very Gentile that we would give out bacon, you know, at a church service. So you'll get some on the way out. Uh, you have to sit through the sermon. Okay. That's the deal. That's the price. Yeah. I know grown. So, um, it's Applewood, uh, bacon. And if you're watching online, you're thinking, Oh man, where's my bacon? then just uh, come by the church this week. Uh, we'll, we'll get, we have bacon for you. We bought extra because we knew you would come by and make the drive for bacon, although you didn't make the drive for church. so <laughs> No guilt, online people, no guilt. It's just a cheap laugh for the people in the room. Um, if you brought an offering today, uh, obviously we're not passing an offering basket and things like that during this time, and so there are two wooden boxes near the doors at the back, and so you can, you can drop it there. That would be great. Um, So, I think that's all we have to say to kind of get things moving. In this series, The Way Home, we're talking about this period of Israel's history when when they come back, come back from exile. But we're trying to give you some context. And the context is important because most of us don't spend a lot of time studying the sort of trajectory or the narrative of the Old Testament. And... These couple of weeks, last week and this week, we're trying to answer this question. How did we get here? And the we, of course, is the nation of Israel. And there's actually two exiles. One happens before Assyria and the northern kingdom. But then the Babylonian exile is really the big deal in Scripture. And it, of course, affects the southern kingdom. And we're going to lay all that context. But before we jump into the scriptural narrative, I just wonder if you've ever asked this question among your uh, co-travelers, your family members, or the people that you're spending time with, how, how, did, we, how did we get here? And it could be that you're asking it you know, because you're looking at a map or Apple Maps or somebody sent you where you shouldn't go. It could be that you're asking it metaphorically when you look at the, the debts that you have and the income that you have and you ask this question, how did we get here? How did we end up in this circumstance? It could be any number of things. Donna and I, we love to explore and we love to see new places we love to go places we've never been before and so we end up asking pretty often how did we how did we get here and we found ourselves near the the base of el capitan the very first time we were in yosemite national park and we asked that question how did we get here we saw it from a distance have you seen el capitan before it's the most incredible, monolithic granite structure you'll ever imagine. It just rises from the valley floor there in Yosemite, and it is just unbelievable. You've, you've seen pictures, but to be near it is just, it's just a, a thing of, of awe and beauty. And, and Donna looked up, and she said, I want to touch that. I want to go, go touch that. And we weren't sure how to get there. We were across a, a creek and, and some distance away, and there was a rise in front of us, and she said, let's go. And so I did what I do when she says let's go. I follow, and uh, usually at some distance, not because of any other reason except it's just hard to keep up. And uh, and this happens whether we're on foot or on bikes or you name it, and so I'm following her, and we find ourselves about an hour later in the middle of a boulder field, in the middle of a forest, on about a 30-degree incline, still some distance from El Capitan, but even further distance from any place safe that we had started at. And I asked her this question, do you think we do things the hard way on purpose? <laughs> Is that how we ended up here? And we asked this question, how, how, did we, how did we get here? And maybe when you have asked this question, how did we get here? Are you feeling like you are isolated and confused and angry and that's where we were, and so we sat down, we had a nice little chat uh, there in Yosemite National Park, and, uh, and then we eventually made it to the base of El Capitan. And I've got a picture, I should have, show, I should have brought it to show you, of her plastered against the side of this uh, wall of El Capitan to say, I made it and we touched it, and thank goodness because we found the trail to get our way out of there. How did we get here? That's the question we're asking. And of course the story in the Old Testament for the people of Israel is not just their story, it's your story too. Every story in Scripture is this way. If you can learn to read the stories of Scripture with the lens of what's happening to these people and and who are they and, and what do they want, the question that we asked and wrestled with last week. When we ask these questions, we begin to see our story and our journey with God and the whole deal. And unless you do that, well then Scripture is just sort of a dry book of history. But if you can use this lens, then all of a sudden the people in Scripture become your friends. And you're co-journeyers and you can together ask the question, how did we get here? And so last week we kind of kicked it off by giving you this bit of history. and We got all the, num- we got all the uh, names, everything, you know, so you can read them properly. Um, and so we told this, this bit of history about creation and Abraham and Moses and the promised land, the period of judges and our time in exile and coming home. This is the big story of the Old Testament. And when we finished last week, we were right in this moment in time where the people of Israel said, we want a what? We want a king. You don't want a king. Yeah, we want a king. He's going to treat you horribly. I know, we still want a king. He's going to send your sons off to war. He's going to employ your daughters all for his purposes. Yeah, but we still want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And God said to Samuel, give them what they want. Give them what they want. God does the same thing with us. And so we wrestled with this question. I hope you're still wrestling with it. What do you want? I hope when you find yourself at work and a promotion is in front of you, you wrestle with this question. What do you want? When you're dealing with your family and talking about finances and you're trying to set your priorities, when you're trying to teach your kids how to make their way forward in the world, I hope you wrestle with this question because this question will lead you to the foot of the cross every time and when it does you get to learn something about how you wander and what that looks like this is what the people of israel learned how they wander you just sang the lyrics do you know it's true of me and of you prone to wander lord i feel it is that you wow Here's the reason why this matters. If you don't know how you wander, then you'll never find your way home. And that's why it's a a key thing. So we stopped here last week. For this week, before we kind of get into the story of the exile and coming home, we're going to focus in on this little section of the timeline, the kings of Israel. Now, you know a little bit about this time if you know something about some Bible stories and history that we want a king, so God gave him a king. The first king was Saul, followed by a king after his own heart, King David, followed by his son named Solomon, and then things begin to disintegrate from there. And this is the story of God's people. And the story of God's people, while they have kings, it's told in several books in our Old Testament. Okay, let me give you just a snapshot. It's told in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and then some priestly recollections of the very same stories are in 1 and 2 Chronicles. And as these books are in our Bible as six different volumes in the original Hebrew scriptures, they were three books, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. In fact, the only reason they're divided into two books in our Bible is because historically the stories wouldn't fit on one scroll, and so they were divided into two. But they tell the story of the kings, the kings and the history of Israel. And mostly this story, over this period of time, is a long, slow slide away from God and how the kings of Israel, some of them led them in good ways. Most were evil. Most were not good for the people of Israel. But this story talks about what happens when you get what you want if you haven't wrestled with why you want it in the first place. So this history, told over six books, here's just a little more detail that will help you. The story of the kings of Israel takes us through two very unique sections. There's the United Kingdom. When Israel was one nation, and this happened under King Saul, King David, and King Solomon... And then shortly after King Solomon reigned, there were two nations, Israel to the north and Judah to the south, where Jerusalem, the capital, is. And in this divided kingdom, there were many other kings. In fact, there were about 42 kings overall for Israel. And as we said, most of them were evil, but there were some little highlights of glimpses of God doing unique things. There was a a king of Judah. In fact, when he became king, he was eight years old. His name was Josiah. Maybe you know the story, and it's in, of course, these these books that tell the story of the kings. King Josiah, eight years old when he became king, when he was about 16 years old, he embarked on this project of cleaning up the dusty temple, and one of the people that was cleaning up the temple found this this old dusty book, and they they blew the dust off of it, and Josiah said, what is that book? And they found out it was an old copy of the Torah that had been so long neglected and just shoved away and stuck in an old closet somewhere. And Josiah said, let me read this. And he began to read it. And when he read it, as a 16-year-old young person, he just wept. And he realized how far the nation of Israel had come from God. And he instituted reforms that, what had been so long since the nation of Israel had drawn their hearts back to God again. When I remember Josiah. I, I think about our high schoolers and our middle schoolers and our graduates and, and those of us who have thought, well, I had to become an adult to do something significant or something unique. And I watch some of the young people of our country taking up the mantle of leadership now, pushing it toward reform. And I'm so proud of who they are. And I think about Josiah and who God uses. And I wonder, how will God use you? And what will he do? Well, this Story, of course, is one shining example when there are so many kings that fail and lead Israel down idolatrous and awful and difficult and painful paths. But it's a history of leadership, and all of you are involved and engaged in a variety of different kinds of leadership, whether you're leading yourself, your family. Your kids, your grandkids, your company, your business, your neighbors, your HOA, you name it. You're leading in the stories of God's people falling and failing and getting up again. Well, they teach us what it means to have a stewardship and do well with it. This is why the history matters. Here's a little more detail for you. So, as we said, we're headed to home, and then there's a period of exile. This is what it means when they come home. That's where we're headed. These six books tell you the history of how they got to a place. How did we get here? These six books tell the story, but it's not the only story. These books tell you these six books of history they tell you the what and the where and the who they tell you about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and the divided kingdom but there's another set of books in your bible in your old testament that tell you a different piece of the story these tell you all the details but there's a whole bunch of books in your scriptures that we would call the what the prophets that's right the prophets are different the prophets tell you the why. These books tell you, you know, the important sequence of events and who was connected and who was involved. And you can't even begin to understand the why unless you know the who, the what, the where, the when, right? Those are important details. In fact, when anybody's trying to get the, you know, the layout of a story, those are the details that matter first. Once you understand the who, the what, the why, the when, then you can go to the deeper more important more compelling motivational heart question of why and the prophets tell that story the prophets in the old testament tell the story of why and the heart behind what happened to the people of israel the prophets are really interesting the prophets are usually men but you may not know this i don't know why we keep it a secret there's a prophetess in the old testament so not all men who are called by God to tell the truth about what is going on. Prophets peel back the curtain and they say, you think you know what's up, but you don't. You've been blinded. You've been blinded by what you want. You've been blinded by your greed. The prophets peel back the curtain and say, let me show you for what it is. Now, prophets, they have no position. They have no power. They're just called by God to stand up, and speak, and act. They do both. Different than the kings of Israel who had authority, who could make decisions, who had more resources than we could ever imagine or dream of today. The prophets are usually nobodies called from obscurity to stand up and tell the truth. And when they do, well... You can imagine. They are wildly unpopular. And it causes all kinds of trouble and issues, these prophets. So let's take just a moment and dig into the prophets just a little bit, okay? So the prophets, and don't think I didn't miss the the backwards stuff there. I saw it. The prophets, they're pretty uh, weird people, Um, Not only are they wildly unpopular, but when God calls them, they're in obscurity and they're open to all kinds of weird things that God asks them to do. And so, like I said, they preach and they teach and they proclaim. They give what we would call in Old Testament language oracles. Oracles. And they will come along during the divided kingdom and begin to point out certain things about who Israel and Judah are so that they will see themselves for the truth. But then God calls them to do some really strange and weird things. Uh, The prophet Hosea, God called him to, to marry a woman of a horrible reputation and actually start a family for her. In fact, their marriage was the key prophecy of his life. When people saw him with this woman who was not just unfaithful but paid to be unfaithful, right? You know, it's a kid's show, so explain it at home. Um, The people of Israel saw this and began to wonder, what is going on? And Hosea used the example of his marriage to talk about the unfaithfulness of the country, the people of God. That's just one example. Isaiah Maybe the prophet most of us know the most. You probably don't know. A little obscure fact and detail. God called Isaiah to walk around everywhere completely naked, head to toe, for three years. Come on, that's 12 seasons. Maybe you know Ezekiel. You've heard about Ezekiel, Valley of the Dry Bones. Ezekiel was called by God to be tied up and laid on his side in a public place for an entire year, not to mention how he cooked his food over a fire that, well, you read it, it's the most disgusting thing you could ever imagine. These were the prophets of God, incredibly strange, complete oddballs, and yet God uses them to bring about change and to call for repentance. The prophets did a few different things, okay? Here's the few things that they did. This is uh, very simplified, but it helps us get our heads around who the prophets were and what they did. The first thing they did is accuse people of sin. So you can imagine why they're wildly unpopular. They show up in a setting and they say, hey, you need to know this is going on and you're a part of it. This involves you. You are not innocent. You are guilty as all others are guilty. And they would name the sin and get very specific about the sin accused of sin the second thing they would do is call for change repentance and they would say look this is where you're headed and this is the problem we need you to turn around and go the other direction and here's why if you don't then i'm going to describe the future for you and this is the future that i want to describe it is it is awful it is terrible i want to warn you it is full of desolation and destruction and we know this is true because the israelites ended up in exile in an evil city under an evil king and god used an evil nation to bring about his justice and punishment for his people and the prophets did this and they said hey you're sinning knock it off here's how you knock it off Go this direction instead of that direction. And if you don't, the future is going to be so horrible for you, it's just unbearable. But it wasn't just warnings. They would also give some encouragement and all kinds of encouragement. They would paint a picture of a day that is to come. So the day of the Lord, phrase often used by the prophets, was describing a day of judgment, but also a day of freedom and liberation and flourishing. And their day that they would describe would also foretell of the coming Messiah, but not just the coming Messiah. Also, of a day and time that we have yet to experience where the kingdom of God comes in its fullness and everything is restored. These were the prophets of God, and they were powerful. We have two kinds of prophets, we call them, in the Old Testament, major prophets and minor prophets. The major prophets, the ones you might imagine, they just have the bigger books. That's why they're called major. Their books are longer. And then there's 12 little minor prophets, and they're the last 12 books of your Old Testament. The major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, who also wrote Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, big books. But then you know some of the minor prophets too. I've mentioned one, Hosea, you know Jonah, and a few others, Malachi. These are the minor prophets, and God used them to change the hearts and minds of some of the Israelites and tell us what is to come. And God called them up, some before the exile, some during, and some after, to say, this is what's coming. One of the prophets, we'll take just a quick dive into one of the major prophets and a minor prophet and give you a glimpse of what was happening in the nation of Israel during this time. One of the prophets that I mentioned already, his name is Jeremiah. God called him right before the exile. He prophesied about an enemy of the north. He told the people of Israel that and Judah that there is a, an enemy coming that is going to come in, capture you and take you away if you don't listen to my words and jeremiah preached and he preached in fact god told jeremiah before he started preaching he said you know you're going to preach and guess what's going to happen they're not going to listen to you i I wouldn't even get out of bed honestly they're not going to listen to you they're going to reject you why am i preaching well i've called you to be obedient and to give this word to the people And so Jeremiah did. And so God called Jeremiah to do all kinds of weird things. Jeremiah had a sash, and God told him, take your sash, take it down to the riverbed. You've been to a riverbed before, right? You've seen the the brackish and muckish mud that's near the edge of a riverbed. He said, take your sash and bury it in the mud. And then after a period of time, after it's decayed and moldy and nasty and smelly, pull it out and hold it up for the people of Israel and say, You're just like this sash. Can you imagine why the prophets were wildly unpopular? And so he did it. He did all of that. God called Jeremiah. Here's what God said to Jeremiah through him. God said to Jeremiah, this is the word of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. And so God called Jeremiah to go to the temple on the Sabbath as people are gathering, God's people coming, and they're coming to worship. They're coming to give offerings. They're coming to burn incense and give sacrifices, just like you came today to worship. Some of you will give offerings. Some of you have being here as a sacrifice. Very, very same, similar setting. God tells Jeremiah, go and stand outside the church. So I don't know what will happen when you leave here. We'll find out, other than you getting bacon. Might be interesting. And Jeremiah waited, and then he began to preach as the people left the temple. And this is what he said. God is going to destroy you. He will do this. He will let you off the hook if you do not oppress the foreigner. This was his message. If you do not oppress the fatherless or the widow. If you do not shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not follow other gods to your own harm. Just read it again. I mean, this is ancient literature. Think about what happens in our culture, not just the current events. Think about history broader. Think about the ways in which those who are wealthy and those who have power, position, and authority take advantage of those in less than wealthy, positional, authority positions. Jeremiah indicts the people of God and says, here's what's happening in your culture. Here's what's happening. You just went to church. God is not happy with your meetings. He doesn't appreciate you gathering. And the reason he doesn't is because you oppress the foreigner, because you don't treat well the people who have come into your country, the immigrants. He's not happy with you because you don't take care of the fatherless or the widow. You shed innocent blood, and you follow other." gods. In fact, this is just one verse out of the book of Jeremiah. It represents really a summary of the messages of the various prophets that are in the Old Testament. Now, I mentioned there's 15 prophets that have books with names attached to them, but they weren't the first prophets. There's other prophets in Scripture. You know them by the, maybe the name or office of prophet, like Elijah, Nathan who came and prophesied to David after he had sinned. And there's other prophets as well throughout the rest of Scripture. Jeremiah is just one. But when he shows up, he's saying, look, here's what happens with the people of God. They engage in idolatry. You know what idolatry is, right? I mean, we don't really call it idolatry much. Idolatry is when we have an allegiance to something other than God that distracts us or dictates our priorities, our time, our energy, our money, you name it. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about your ties to God, although all of those things can be connected to idolatry. What I'm saying is idolatry is when there is something that is important to you that becomes more important than your living, breathing, daily relationship with God. It could be ambition. It could be success. It could be money. It could be the perceptions of other people it could be the hope of your future or where you find your security in fact the truth is this if I describe idolatry and something doesn't come to mind for you all that means is is you haven't thought much about it that's all it means in fact most of us struggle with idolatry in one way or another. We, we don't want to call it that because, gosh, that seems to be the most grievous sin there could be. But the truth is, idolatry is as common as breathing. And the people of Israel engaged in idolatry and then they would inch in deep further in, over and over. We do the same thing all the time. The people of Israel, whenever they engaged in idolatry... The very next thing to show up was injustice, always. Why? Well, idolatry is nothing but old-fashioned selfishness. Me first. That's what idolatry is. I care more about me than I care about you. It's the opposite of agape love. Idolatry says, after I get mine, you can get yours. If I'm born with position or power and I have mine, then we'll give you what's left over. It's the opposite of agape love. That's idolatry. And so what is a natural result of idolatry? Injustice, always. What's injustice? Oh, it's when you oppress the foreigner. It's when you don't take care of the fathers of the widow. It's when you shed innocent blood and so on. And this indictment is in the prophets over and over and over again. Their story is our story. It's not unique to them. It's not even unique to us. It's not unique to any culture. It's our story, always. Selfishness breeds injustice. And idolatry is the epitome of selfishness. So Jeremiah calls it out. And when Jeremiah calls it out, he knows they're not going to listen. He knows that he won't be successful. He knows that time is short. And eventually, Jeremiah, as a prophet, witnesses the enemy from the north coming and enslaving the people of Israel and taking them off in captivity. He experiences all of it. A little bit before Jeremiah, there was another prophet. He's in your Bible, has his own book. His name is Amos. And God calls Amos to be a prophet as well. So he's a minor prophet. And this is one of the things that Amos says, okay? Again, you're going to see the same themes. Read every prophet and you will see the same themes over and over and over again. Here's what Amos says. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent, who take bribes and deprive the poor of what? Say it with me, justice Justice in the courts. Now, you would think that a court would be a place where justice would prevail, but of course, in the court, there are people who have position and power and authority and means and money, and they now make use of their money to achieve justice for them. Well, we call that a bribe. That's what we call it. And Amos says it, and he calls it out. Therefore, he says, the prudent keep quiet. And I believe for the prophet Amos, prudent is in quotes. Keep quiet in such times. Why? For the times are evil. The people who see injustice and don't do anything about it, well, they're choosing prudence over everything. What does that mean? I've got mine. We'll see when you get yours. I've got what I need. I don't know about you. Time will tell. Well, you didn't earn yours. I earned mine. Well, you didn't start where I started. The prudent keep quiet. Now, it's not all dark and all dismal in the prophets. Again, remember what I said? They tell the future. And the future might involve Babylonian destruction and captivity, but the future also includes a time, a time when Justice and righteousness prevail when the Messiah comes and everything is said and the Messiah comes again and the kingdom of God comes in his fullness. In fact, Amos talks about a time and he describes it. And here's how he describes it. Maybe you saw this on the screen earlier. He says, but there will be a time, but let justice will roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. He describes a time in the future when there will be a moment when life is restored and life begins to flourish again. And when life flourishes again, it will be because justice rolls on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Do you remember what we said about creation? Remember what we said about where creation fits and that God created this beautiful place and he planted and, he, and there's water and there's light and he took darkness and he created light and then he took chaos and he created order? And as he did all of this, he made this place where man and woman and all the creatures that he created could flourish and grow. Remember this? How flourishing occurs. Well, when the prophets describe destruction, they describe the undoing of creation. Light turns to darkness, justice turns to injustice the order that God has established turns to chaos. Does this sound like anything you've witnessed lately? It's the undoing of creation. You and I, we have been called by God's agents to participate with him in allowing us to create places where people flourish, where people can know who they are, why they were created, and who God is. This is when we flourish. We are reestablishing the flourishing that God established in Eden. That's what you've been called to do. It's what I've been called to do. And when we create a place where somebody can flourish, we see them as God sees them. We love them the way God loves them. We create systems that are full of justice and righteousness, And we see all of us the same, created by God in his image. It's the most beautiful thing that a dad does for his kids, Father's Day, right? Creating a place where they can flourish and grow. While we're worshiping online uh, today in the chat room, Josh's parents are there. They're watching from Newfoundland and they're watching, you know, dad, he mentioned his dad uh, as he began worship. And his parents say in the chat room that they remember the day when Josh was given his first guitar. Josh, how old were you when that happened? Do you remember? I was pretty, young. pretty young. So maybe later it'll occur to Josh and we'll put that out. But we'll, we'll say eight, were you eight, nine, ten years old? Yeah. And so Josh's dad says this, and, and they type it in a little chat room. And when Josh was given this guitar, they actually put a quote in the chat room of what Josh said. He said, This is the bestest day ever. And so I'm reading that quote, and I look up, and there's Josh on our stage leading you and me in worship. He's flourishing because. There was somebody that created an atmosphere, an environment where justice and righteousness could roll like a river in his life, a place where he could flourish and know the gift of God that was in him. And today, we as a community here at Castle Oaks, and there's so many of you that have been able to flourish, and whether it's Scott Stevens who decides food and hungry people, let's put them together. This young man gifted by God in such unique ways. He should be leading God's people in worship. This is exactly what God had in mind when he describes through the prophet Amos that justice will roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. The words here that he's describing are really important words. One is mishpat. Say it with me. Mishpat. That's good. And the other is sedekah I know it doesn't look like that, but it, trust me it is. sedekah Say it with me. Sedekah. So when... Justice is described, it's described as actions that correct injustice. You think, oh, so it doesn't mean that somebody just gets what they deserve. That's what you and I think of as justice. Somebody who's evil getting what they deserve. But it means that God's people do things that correct systems of injustice that allow people who don't have to be able to start from the same place that people that do have. That's what mishpat means. Righteousness, we think, is being holy or without sin. That's not what it means in the Old Testament. That's not what it means in the Hebrew. What it means is that there is equity among us despite social differences. Isn't that different? Isn't that unique? And this is why the people of Israel were brought into captivity and taken Babylon so the question that we wrestle with last week was what do you want good question if you're going to wrestle with the prophets though it's a different question the prophets make you wrestle with this question who are you who are you what do you want as part of that but what do you value how is God using you where has he placed you Who are you? There was a a New Testament prophet too. Anybody remember his name? His name was John the Baptist, right? He came to come before Jesus. He came to lay the foundation for the ministry of Jesus. I don't know if you remember his message or not. John the Baptist out by the Jordan River stood up and said to the people, he said, you are a brood of vipers. That's what he said. Again, in the true spirit of being a prophet, John the Baptist, not very popular, especially among the spiritually religious people, not very popular. Do you think he took role that day by the Jordan River? I mean, do you think he pointed at certain people and said, you, uh, you, you you're you, a brood of vipers. I mean, you're fine, but you, you're, you're a brood of vipers and... And don't think that I meant that for a minute, Steve Johnson. You're also a Voodoo Breifers. I, just, I was just using you as an example. And so this is what John the Baptist did. He stood up in front of everyone, the righteous and the unrighteous, the, the healthy spiritually and the unhealthy spiritually. He just collectively said, you're a brood of vipers. You remember what Jesus said? I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a what? A sword. Prophets divide. It's what they do. And they ask this question, who are you? And you have to answer. So what happens when John the Baptist stands up in front of these people and he says, you're a brood of vipers? There's two reactions, aren't there? There's some people that say, how dare you? How dare you call me that? You know nothing about me. You have no right to say that about me. And there are others that hear what John the Baptist says. And they say, "Hmm, maybe I am. Maybe I am. I wonder if I am. And I need to wrestle with that. I need to ask this question: Who who am I?" And all of a sudden, the way for Jesus was cleared. How? What well, hardened the hearts of those who were spiritually bankrupt? And it soften the hearts of people who are seeking for God. I know, I know this culture is tough right now. I know the things that you see on TV and the headlines that you read and the, the polarization of what's occurring politically. I know it's so hard to find your way. But do not buy in to the mistake of the polarization that the 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 news media or, or the politicians or anybody else wants you to buy into. God is asking you this question. He's been asking it since the beginning of time. Who are you? Who are you? And so when somebody says, you bunch of racists, there are some of us that say, how dare you? But God is looking for men and women that might say, maybe I am. Maybe I am. And thoughtfully deal with the question. That is the dividing line in our culture right now. Because the prophets aren't just asking, who are you? Remember, they're talking about the future too, right? They're talking about the future. So it's not just who are you, it's also this. Who are you becoming? What direction are you headed? Is your heart softer or is it harder? Are you open? Are you closed? Is agape love sort of paving the way or are you shutting down? You remember what happened to John the Baptist? He said, you're all brood of vipers. And there were some that got mad and left. And they eventually had his head, right? They killed him. They cut his head off. But there were some that stayed. And they said, what should we do? What should we do? And John said, well, if you have two coats, give one away. Oh. Uh, Don't cheat people. How about that? Don't do that. And he gave them very practical ways of meeting people right where they are. So, look, if you want to debate politics, that's a fine hobby. Go after it. If you want to line up and campaign and you know donate to whoever if you want to engage in the mess of our culture that's great but first on your list if we're going to really address the idolatry of our age first on our list ought to be this but who are you becoming and what does agape love look in your life what's it look like the prophets come to divide and they're looking for people with soft hearts will you be one of them let's pray Lord, right now as we are about to sing uh, what a good father you are, we ask that you would meet us right here and you would help us wrestle with this question. Who are we becoming? What kind of people are we becoming? Lord, it is a difficult time to be a follower of your son. It's confusing. Many of us are confused. It's very testing. Some of us are being pulled and, and we're finding ourselves uh, torn in a lot of different ways. But, Lord, what you're calling us to is the same thing you have always called your people to, that we would create places where people can flourish, that we would bring agape love into every conversation, every organization, every system of justice. And as we do that, Lord, that we would be people that bring about justice and righteousness, and it would flow like an unquenchable stream, like a river in Colorado in April and May that is flowing with the, the incredible snow melt that just causes the water to rush and clean and refresh. That's what we want to be. And so we do that only in the context of your love, your love for us, unconditional, and your love for all people, have been created in your image. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus.